0: This week on Talking Acoustics, I'm joined by Rick Bond. Rick is a speaker builder from Melbourne, Victoria, and his company, Lucy Audio, not only builds speakers but also a matching DSP-based audio processor to apply room corrections uh, to the system in real time. Um, I heard of Rick via his own podcast, Speaker Talk, which he co-hosts with Welsh speaker builder Tristan Hardy of Gwed Loudspeakers. Uh, I've played around with loudspeakers a bit over the years and I was pretty intrigued by the room correction technology that Rick um, has. So I took the chance to meet him and check it out for myself when I was in Melbourne recently.
1: So Rick Bond, thanks for uh, taking the time to have a chat. Not a problem, Matthew. Thanks for coming. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the contact.
0: It's great. So, uh, Rick, you're from Lucy Audio. Correct. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the sort of things you do?
1: Yes, how do you sure. Explain it to someone on the street. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, it is a tricky one. I mean, I, I still don't know how to define myself, uh, especially considering that I wear a number of hats depending on what day of the week it is. Uh, so, Lucy is not my full time venture. Um, just to give you a brief background, I actually trained as a photographer, so uh, I am very much not uh, formally trained in in anything to do with audio or acoustics, but um, it's certainly been an interest of mine for many years and uh, something that I'm gravitating towards uh, in my journey. So I came to audio and particularly DIY loudspeakers uh, as a teenager. I was mucking around in high school with uh, various terrible things that I cobbled together, but um, they, Yeah, they're, they're that first seed, I guess, of, of planting an interest in something that you might come to later in life. And, uh, you know, as life happened, I drifted away from all that, but uh, circumstances changed uh, a couple of years ago for me and uh, I found CNC manufacturing and I found uh, someone I could work with for uh, Customs and Electronics and suddenly that interest was uh, sparked again because these things were now possible in ways that they just weren't. You know, in, in your backyard with a circular saw and a few bits of MDF, mm. you can only do so much. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried that. Yeah. So, um, no, look, it's, it's uh, very much a function of where we are in time in terms of what I'm doing now uh, with uh, a range of fairly uh, bespoke but um, uh, advanced manufacturing techniques uh, in loudspeakers and electronics. So the products are, are handmade, but they do very much have a basis in uh, advanced manufacturing and um, and uh, yeah, modern production
0: methods. Mm-hmm. And so you're manufacturing uh, a range of loudspeakers, but also some sort of processing yes.
1: tools and amplifiers in yes. addition
0: to the loudspeakers.
1: So, in a nutshell, what uh, Lucy aims to achieve is to solve a lot of the issues present in good sound reproduction in a domestic setting. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, for a long time the industry has ignored the importance of room acoustics in terms of the end result for a customer going out and spending potentially big bucks at a hi-fi store is that they go in and demonstrate this gear in a fairly well acoustically treated space uh, and are sold on a particular sound and then they get the gear home and and realise that. Uh, Or perhaps they they don't want to acknowledge because they've just spent all this money, Mm. but something's not quite right. And that's usually in the context of an overly bright, uh, room that the gear is placed into in what could be a fairly challenging scenario you know right up against the wall or or something else that uh, is making it um, a compromise and uh, that 's where some uh, some clever harnessing of, of modern tech be it's uh, physical room treatment or the use of dSP can really make some powerful differences for people
0: so if I spent twenty thousand dollars on a set of speakers and I bring it home to my um Marble floored lounge room with uh, big glass Correct. windows and yeah. uh, stick them in the corner, and then... which is
1: really not an unusual premise. I mean, no. I think a lot of people do do this, yep. and perhaps they can't fully articulate why they're not as impressed as they thought they'd be, uh, because the you know realistically the industry doesn't want to go there because they're not fully equipped to deal with it in the domestic mm. Wi-Fi market. Uh, you know, and and that's fair enough because they're not in the business of room treatment in the business of selling boxes. Yeah. And being able to sell someone a box based on the merits of the box is always going to be their preferred uh, course of action rather than saying yep. okay well you've got you've got this gear let's let's work on improving it first. Yep. So I think that's for me that was the the point in time when I first got introduced to what DSP could do in some challenging environments I thought well wow why are we wasting our time with all this incremental upgrades of Cables and interconnects, and you know this DAC and that power amp. Like we're, we're missing the point here, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, so it sounds yeah. like
0: the the um, that preamplifier or that processor yes. um, that's is sort of the core of your system is what, yes, very what much so. It's, it's
1: definitely the heart and soul of why the gear can do what it can do.
0: And, that, sure. and so that's a processor that comes after, you know, you take your output from your CD player or something and you feed yes. it this audio Yeah, and it does something to that signal before it yeah. sends it off to the amp and to the speakers. What, What is it doing?
1: So what we're talking about is pro- signal processing in the digital domain to correct for amplitude response and uh, coherence in the time domain mm-hmm. of the signal when it arrives at your listening position, which... So it's in not just
0: like an EQ where you're just looking at the frequency domain. Correct. You're also looking at the response in
1: time Yeah, as well. well, it's how the two interact with each other, which yeah. is loosely the phenomenon of phase. So phase is a property of the slope angle, and that can interact in very complex ways. So the, the signal that's emanating from the loudspeaker is arriving at your listening position, but the signal that's emanating from the loudspeaker is also bouncing off a bunch of surfaces mm-hmm. and also arriving at the listening position in a slight time shift. Yep. Uh some even before or after the initial impulse from the from the loudspeaker. Yep. So what we're doing is looking at the proportion of those and we're looking at how we can transform the signal to give a qualitative improvement. And it may not actually measure flat, but to do with the psychoacoustic ability of of our brain, uh it, it is a qualitatively better result. Mm.
0: Okay. So, it's, it's looking at um, that impulse response at the receiver, which has this initial spike, which is our impulse, and the direct sound coming to us. And yep. then we've got all these reflections that come at slightly yes, later. So and so we get these little yes. peaks later in the time response, yeah. which also then is affecting frequency because we're
1: doing all sorts of funny stuff. Yeah, correct. A- and and yeah. generally speaking, we would limit the correction in the, uh, in the upper frequency range. So we're doing most of the heavy lifting in the in the base and mid-range mm-hmm. region, because yep. uh, our, our brains are, are, are more susceptible to phase and frequency response anomalies in those regions. Right,
0: and I presume too as well. Once you get into very high frequencies, the the effect spatially as you move a couple of centimetres to the yeah. left or right is going to negate some of the
1: yeah, r- correct. ability correct. for. Um, and the, the room, frequency. the room in all, all uh, in all honesty, is doing less, or, or you know. Um, contributing less problematic stuff at that in, that, mm. in those ranges as well yeah. uh, you know your big uh, response uh, issues are usually in the in the base mm. like, a couple of hundred Hertz or, or lower
0: so it's actually some of those room modes where you've got standing waves um, just because of the dimensions of the room is it sort of picking up on those as well and oh very much so yeah
1: yep and it's uh, again not completely ironing out those nulls or peaks Mm-hmm. It's it's looking at how what the relationships are and how in the time domain we can make small changes to amplitude peaks or troughs to, again, maintain the uh, relationship between frequencies because we don't want to overcorrect things which yeah. we perceive as act- actually uh, more detrimental. Like if we actually fully correct those nulls, it's more detrimental to the qualitative result than actually just making small changes which also influence the, refle- the amount of absorbed, uh, reflected energy that's arriving at the listening position as well. Yep. So the, the key difference I find with uh, this technology from Dirac Research is that they weight problems in the time domain equally with problems in the frequency domain right. and how those two yep. um, fundamentally interlink things. So they're bonded
0: together. I mean, that's You right. can't sort yeah. of separate them ultimately. Yep. That's why EQ sometimes, if you're changing things in the frequency domain with EQ, um, you get some unnatural in time yeah,
1: Correct. Yeah, correct.
0: So um, you mentioned Dirac there. So, yes. So Dirac are a company that um, produce software and algorithms, is it?
1: That- yeah, correct. So Dirac Research, uh, they're based in Sweden. Uh, they've come out of, uh, first of all, uh, some very clever people who are uh, uh, trained in signal analysis. So they started out looking at signals and waveforms, and I think they had a passing interest in acoustics, actually, rather than the other way around, mm-hmm. uh, and thought, okay, how can we apply our knowledge in terms of uh, signal processing to uh, yeah, the, that, that idea of good sound reproduction? Mm-hmm. So they uh, started up a firm that, in the early days, were looking at uh, uh, specifically trying to solve problems with um, sound reproduction some fairly high-end automotive applications and uh, as they progressed they started to to, uh, see the benefits for a larger um, a larger range of end users as well so their uh, platform which is called Dirac Live in terms of the uh, room correction uh, software is now available in actually a fairly good range of products that you'd actually see from, from fairly big manufacturers out in the uh, domestic and pro sound
0: space. Yeah, okay. So they they produce the the software and the algorithms, and then correct. they license that out or uh, correct. license that out to different manufacturers. And, yep. And they they're not producing the hardware.
1: No, correct. So they're in the software business. Yep. Uh, they uh, produce software which will run on a variety of different DSP platforms. One of which uh, we can access as an OEM. So that's the way we've gone. We've mm. uh, uh, put our eggs in their basket because we feel like uh, they're aligned. You know, I personally feel like their results uh, mesh with my end goals. Yep. In terms of, well, I want a musical outcome rather than a measured outcome. <laughs> yep, yep. And Dirac are definitely uh, on the right track there. So you're able
0: to harness that, um, that sort of IP that, that Dirac have come up with. Yes. Um, some hardware from a, from a DSP manufacturer, and then you take that and put it in a, a black box. That,
1: uh, correct. It, yeah. pulls and, it all together and uh, makes
0: it usable, I
1: guess. Yes, correct. So I feel like I'm, in terms of the electronics, uh, I do certainly, uh, you know, from the ground up design, loudspeakers. But in terms of the electronics, I see myself more as the architect of the system, Mm -hmm. putting things together in ways that achieve the result that I want uh, rather than fully developing every piece of the puzzle. So things that we do do in-house, things like linear power supplies to power the digital gear uh, and uh, particularly the analog circuitry on the output side. So we feel very strongly... um, that uh, one of the one of the significant drawbacks with a lot of DSP uh, gear that is available, to particularly the domestic market, is that they're doing uh, attenuation or volume control uh, in the digital domain, and we'd rather put that in an analog circuit post DSP and run our DSP fully saturated. Simply, mm. so because you effectively,
0: best. if you as soon as you start volume limiting in the DS, in the digital side, you limiting your you're not using your dynamic range. Depth, yeah,
1: basically. correct, exactly. Yeah. So we would rather run the DSP flat out and then uh, do level attenuation in the the analog domain, which we can design a really clever circuit to do. So So
0: from your your preamp, then you come out with an analog signal at the end of it? Yep, so we go through a multi-channel
1: DAC. Uh, We've got up to four outputs. So we can use uh, filters to do crossover functions also in the DSP if we choose to. Okay. So that could either be fed to a passive you know, full-range full two-channel system or uh, two full-range speakers plus two subwoofers or mm-hmm. a 2.1 system. Uh, so yeah. there's a bit of flexibility there. Uh, I also run my active two-ways through that uh, four outputs. So, yep. uh, And then we can precisely level match and adjust globally those uh, levels in our um, output board for um, attenuation.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you have this um, preamp processor system. And then that runs into, um, you also have an amplifier system. Correct, yeah. And the together. amplifier is a
1: straight power amp. There's no uh, no real uh, point of difference there to whatever other power amp or even integrated amp that you might find out there. Yep. Uh, all it's doing is, is voltage gain um, yep. and then straight to the loudspeaker. So uh, our preamp can certainly be happily hooked up to a variety of different existing uh, amplifiers, be they integrated or power, of a range of different budgets or... or flavors. Yep. Uh, The flavor that that I personally have gone with is a uh, Class D circuit from Hypex in the Netherlands. Uh, Mm -hmm. So their technology uh, called Encore uh, is another, particularly for me as an OEM, really great platform to be aligned with uh, because they give me everything I could possibly want in a power amp. Yep. Um, And it's quite easy to integrate into a finished product. Now,
0: Class D. um, Yes might Sprig a few people's uh, interest. Yeah, given, given the, the world of hi-fi is uh, you know, very focused on class A and, and yes, um, sort of perhaps highly inefficient um, yeah. ways to, to amplify a signal. Yeah, um, you got any comments on that? And, and uh, the- look, I
1: I, uh, I actually I probably can't speak with complete authority because I haven't had a huge range of exposure to different amp topologies. But certainly, from my subjective point of view, with the amps that i 've tried, uh, I find uh, this particular uh, class D circuit, which is i think there's class D and then there's Class D, uh, particularly in recent years uh, Class D has copped a lot of bad rep uh, from people particularly in the in the uh, in the vein of uh, the power supply stage. so uh, switch mode power supplies mm-hmm. I think historically have been audibly inferior, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I just don't think that's the case anymore. I yep. think uh, we've come to a point in technology where uh, some really good Class-D amps are, from a measurement perspective, almost flawless. Yep. And you can still get into these subjective arguments about topologies, but for me, these amps just disappear. Mm. Uh, they don't provide an inherent character, which for ha- perhaps for some would be viewed as a weakness, but for me, that's what I want. I want mm. uh, as close as I can possibly get to that notion of a wire with gain, yep. and, and that's what I get with these uh, with these, uh, in-core amps, so mm. I'm, I'm very happy going that way. But I also perfectly buy the argument of uh, a perhaps a warmer-sounding tube mm. uh, character. So part of the, the design goal for me was to be able to offer the DSP functions in a preamp DAC processor-type form factor for someone to be able to say, oh, yeah, this is great. I'll, I'll hook this up to my, you know, 94 dB efficient uh, horn speakers with mm. my tube front end, and mm-hmm. they can get the benefit of room correction uh, with some really esoteric uh, analog yeah. gear. So so that was part of my consideration going the way that I did, was that I'd like to give people that, that opportunity to, to BYO um, DSP to an existing system.
0: Yeah. Because, you know, whether we're talking class A or AB or D or whatever – that's just talking about topology. It doesn't tell you, it doesn't tell you anything about whether it's a Correct. a good circuit or not. Correct. Yes. Um, you know, I, I have I have a couple of setups at home, and I have a valve setup that glows and sounds lovely. Hmm. Um, and I've got a more modern setup, and they both sound great. But gosh, the valve one—it's um, like having a heater on. It, it's, it's oh yeah. it's yeah, it's not very efficient. No, um, certainly. <laughs> it's you know you could argue which is better or worse.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't I don't try and weigh in on that debate too much. I present my uh, my choice, my personal choice in the in the power amps that I offer. But I'm certainly not about to try and convince anyone of, uh, well, yeah, try and try and convince anyone that their choice is wrong.
0: No, so, I mean it's true. it's interesting to me in this sort of um, hi fi market because. There's a lot more, perhaps a, people are a lot more sort of subjective and oh, yeah. passionate about things yes. than um, audio in a professional context where people yeah I worry less about some of these um, elements sure. yep. that go on.
1: I think, I mean, in terms of recording, engineering and mastering, I think there is a lot of room for engineers to say, oh, no, I choose this gear because it's got a valve pre or, you know, uh, that definitely goes on, mm. uh, but it is very much in the hands of a professional making a working decision based on an outcome mm. rather than uh, a more subjective, uh, I've been told this is right so I've gone and done this. Yeah, or, and based
0: on and an educated ed- set of ears yeah, that, yeah. that says I, I hear this and I prefer the sound of it yeah. rather and that's than not I... To say,
1: that's not to say that, that those, uh, those preferences aren't valid in the context of, of domestic hi-fi yeah. for sure, but I think there is... Uh, yeah, a lot of decisions are based on a spec sheet rather than um, a desired experience. Yep. For sure.
0: And and I want to touch on um, crossovers because you mentioned that there, um, that your processor can also do crossovers in the digital yep. domain and, and yep. send out a, a signal for a sort of biamp yep. situation. Yep. Um can you talk a little bit about digital crossovers versus analog and
1: Yeah, sure. So, so fundamentally, and... yeah. So fundamentally, we're trying to do the same thing in terms of we're trying to uh, split up the signal into bands that are appropriate for a given loudspeaker transducer, be it a woofer or a mid-range tweeter. So uh, that is achieved by selectively attenuating the signal uh, in either a high pass or a low pass or a band pass um, way to tailor that signal to that driver. So we can do that with analog componentry in terms of uh, capacitors, inductors, resistors to shape this, the response of a of circuit. So an inductor will pass low frequency and roll off high frequency, um, whereas a capacitor will have the inverse. It'll, it'll pass high frequency but roll off low frequency due to its um, uh, reactive qualities in a circuit. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, yeah, just different ways of achieving the same outcome um, in terms of... Uh, what happens to the signal. But uh, DSP obviously has the flexibility of being digital and completely controllable on the fly. Mm. Uh, So from a prototyping uh, standpoint, it's fantastic because I can iteratively design any potential crossover slope I want and try it.
0: You don't have to have a bunch of uh, capacitors
1: and inductors
0: and resistors that you're uh, forever pulling in and out of a circuit. So
1: so that's really handy uh, from a manufacturing standpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh it also has advantages in terms of I don't have to worry about uh component tolerances uh matching uh capacitors within one percent to achieve a good outcome. Uh I can I can know with absolute certainty that the maths is gonna do the right thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we are dealing with mathematical uh formulas here to to achieve the same outcome in either the analog or, or digital mm-hmm. domain. So uh yeah, for me uh having the power to do active crossovers. In DSP also allows me control over the time domain, which you don't have with uh, a passive crossover. So mm. there is no way of achieving a you know fraction of a millisecond delay in an analog circuit um, that I know of. Yep. Anyway. Uh, so for me, uh, again, in, in situations where loudspeaker placement is challenging, uh, having control over the frequency bands in the time domain is also incredibly useful to, again, achieve a good result. Mm. Uh, so, for me, uh, DSP makes cer- certainly good sense. Uh, I do have uh, options for passive designs as well, uh, but the way I would certainly steer people uh, is towards an active design for flexibility.
0: Mm. Yep. yep. So, uh, and this is one of the things you were talking about on your own part. You've got a podcast yourself. I do. Uh, speaker Talk. Speaker Talk, correct, correct. Yep.
1: yes, uh, which you can find on my website.
0: Right. Um We'll put the links on yep. On there. Um one of the things you were talking about was uh, a six, using your your sort of preference for six cb crossover for a sort of first order crossover. Yes, which I yeah for the for the non electrical engineers that um, muck around with all this uh, that that's basically a simpler um, crossover in that there's less components in it, which yes. means there's less. Um, there's oddities to come into it in terms of phase response. and uh... Yeah,
1: well, the, the, um, the phase response of a first-order crossover is actually a mathematical property, not just in terms of the uh, components themselves, mm-hmm. but it's uh, such that two uh, converging 6 dB slopes will sum as phase coherent, mm-hmm. uh, which is the only topology that you can actually say that for. Mm, okay. uh, all other crossover topologies have uh, a slight phase shift uh, at the crossover point. So, and whether that is uh, the most critical thing in terms of the perceived quality of that crossover slope, I don't know if that's so, but certainly for me, I found that to be, I found that to impart something that I didn't get with any other slopes Mm. in terms of uh, neutrality at that crossover point. I always feel like these days when I listen to a lot of speakers with very complex uh, crossover topology is that I... I just get tired listening to them. Yep. And my working theory, I haven't really done any research into this, is that uh, your brain is doing quite a lot of processing to account for those minor phase shifts in the crossover. And 6 dB slopes always sound more natural to me. But uh, there is a very real hindrance to first-order crossovers in that they're not particularly kind to drivers, in that they'll push drivers a lot harder outside their working range. Mm. So you've got to be very conscious of what you're doing and whether it's going to actually cause a problem for your drivers.
0: Because you're asking the driver to work over a broader frequency range.
1: Correct. Exactly. Yeah, which particularly for tweeters can be uh serious yeah, seriously mm. at risk of, of damaging tweeters at high SPL if they're working outside their nominal yep. range. Yeah.
0: Yep. And does that um, does that hold true with a digital filter as well, that the yeah. 6 dB slope, you, you're still working with that 6 dB slope even with your digital filters Yeah, because you can get the – because the phase sums correctly?
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, another part of it is that if there are problems in the time domain or, you know, in, in terms of if the drivers are out of alignment so that – such that uh, one impulse is arriving before the other, you will get really noticeable problems with a 6 dB slope if that's not correct because you've got a larger overlap which will yep. lead to a larger null.
0: Yes. So yep. uh,
1: it does impart uh, a heavier uh, list of criteria on the on the actual physical uh, design of the loudspeaker. So driver alignment becomes incredib- incredibly important
0: mm. to
1: achieving a good outcome with a 6 dB slope, whereas the phase shift would be less noticeable in a second or third or fourth order crossover. Because
0: it's over a tighter band, effectively. Yeah,
1: So it might just disappear. Yep.
0: Yep. All right. Right. Can we talk about um, cabinet response for a bit? Um, Yes. Can you maybe maybe just um, talk briefly about um, the physical size of cabinets and how that affects their... um, their frequency response or the range of frequencies that they can reproduce, and then how porting uh, might change that. Um,
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, most fundamentally, uh, when we talk about cabinet volume, we're really talking about base extension. So uh, the low frequency is where cabinet volume and size of driver are the most critical, or relationship between cabinet volume and the driver properties are the most critical. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, a yeah, I mean, there's two kind of standard um, models for designing most loudspeakers. In the, are they ported or sealed? Which means can the uh, is the driver coupled to the whole room uh, pneumatically or is the driver only coupled to the air that's inside the box? Mm. So a ported design means that the air volume pushing back on the cone is the entire volume of the listening space. Mm. Uh, it's being fed through a port, but really there's no... Uh, Impedance uh, to the driver's cone movement in in a sealed enclosure—you've got effectively a spring pushing back that driver cone for each uh, impulse. Yep. So um, traditionally, uh, loudspeakers were sealed. Uh, It's only you know fairly recently. When did did ports start being used? Probably sometime in the I want to say sixties, sixties, seventies. So. Traditionally, loudspeakers were sealed and they were very large. Mm. Uh, So uh, large drivers, um, yeah, uh, uh, historically have been the answer in terms of base extension uh, and uh, large cabinets to to compensate for that. So ported became a way for the industry to uh, perceptively have good base output in a smaller cabinet. And that, Mm. of course, you know, for the the domestic market was a huge uh, issue because... Mm. No one's going to have these giant boxes, you know, taking up a third of the volume of their living room. It's just ludicrous. I mean, okay, well, I've just mentioned a subset of the, uh, the hi-fi <laughs> market <laughs> is, is probably still doing that, but that, that's fine. Um, I, you know, certainly as a manufacturer, I am trying to solve problems for more, uh, yeah, more uh, challenging and smaller uh, acoustic spaces. So, yep. so that's my focus in terms of trying to get good output from smaller cabinets. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and sealed and ported is uh, both viable for me. Um, there are qualitative differences between both. Uh, you know, I mean, if I can get away with it, I'd choose a sealed enclosure. But you also are uh, pushing drivers uh, harder in a sealed environment usually. Mm. Um, because you're you're asking them to ex ex uh their excursion to be greater for a given SPL mm-hmm. yep. because uh, a percentage of the base energy from a ported loudspeaker is also coming from the inside. You're using the air. You're using the um the back of the cone as well as the front of the cone mm-hmm. to, to give you um, your SPL. Yep. So, Presumably
0: there's a compromise too in in having a ported yeah. In so there's a phase, in another element that there's a phase consideration
1: uh, yeah. in that absolutely in that there's a time delay between the energy from the back of the cone mm-hmm. going through the port. Uh, arriving um, at the listening position again. So yeah, in- inherent in all this stuff is swings and roundabouts with loudspeaker design. There's never one correct answer. It's uh, well, okay, what's your priority, and how do you work
0: with that? Mm. Um, yeah, uh, okay. And beyond, so beyond the the shape and or the size of the cabinet, at least, um, presumably the internal space inside the cabinet, the acoustics of that space yes. has an effect. Whether it's yep damped or not, and whether yes. it's the reflections in inside the cabinet. Yep. Um, and probably materials as well.
1: Has some yeah, for sure. Effect. For sure. And I'm still feeling my way through this, very much so. I wouldn't profess to be an expert on uh, cabinet material selection just at this point in my trajectory. I've certainly found things that do work, but I haven't tried everything by mm. any means. You know, I, I hear of people looking at concrete enclosures and all sorts of weird and wonderful materials. I'm, oh, yeah, it's fascinating. What would that do? So it's one of those things.
0: Nice into, and dense makes it hard to um, move house.
1: Yeah, correct. There's always a downside. <laughs> so uh, for me, a couple of things that I have latched onto in is in my design and construction, uh, I'm creating uh, diffusion patterns inside the enclosure. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at breaking up standing waves inside the box, which is where some of the CNC uh, techniques come in in terms of uh, each one of these uh, loudspeaker cabinets. If you look at the internal walls, you won't see any flat surfaces apart from the rear and the and the front panel, uh, they're contoured such that uh, for every uh, section going through the cabinet, there's a unique internal profile.
0: Uh, so, so for the listeners, where your cabinets are um, effectively the back and front plate um, mm-hmm. like a flat piece of wood. Yes, but the between the front and the back, the sides of the cabinet are not actually four pieces of wood no, correct. One on each side. You've got you've you've cut
1: out. Um, yeah, so so you can think of them as ribs yep. going through the enclosure. So each one of those ribs is cut from a flat sheet. Yep. But then they're laid up, stacked on top of each other to create uh, that 3D enclosure.
0: And because you're CNC cutting those, you can um cut in a profile on each of those ribs that's that's unique. That's yeah. different from the the previous one, so that what you end up with internally is a, a different profile surface. Yeah
1: yeah and that certainly I feel like has advantages uh, sonically in terms of the the cabinets aren't contributing really anything to the acoustic output apart from the way the baffle influences the response, which is mm-hmm. more in the mid-range and treble. Uh, so I do feel like I'm adding uh, something to the yeah to the result uh, in the cabinet construction for sure yep uh, and there's different approaches to all that as well in terms of uh, some quite well regarded manufacturers in uh, the domestic loudspeaker scene would be actually using the acoustic uh, element of the, of the cabinet, you know, using using more resonant materials, thinner walls, uh, to colour, for, for better or worse, the mm. sound output. So, uh, you know, Harbeth is one manufacturer that comes to mind, who's a traditional British manufacturer, and they're sort of harking back to cabinet constructions that were used uh, you know, from brands like Kef and um, and Rogers in the... Little BBC monitors and things like that, very very thin wall Mm -hmm. uh, birch ply that actually did resonate. Yep, Uh, but that's not to say that that was a that was that wasn't a bad idea. They sound
0: interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think with a lot of these things, it's it's things sound different, and whether it's better or worse depends on perspective. Sure, Um, they have character. That's for sure. Yeah, Yeah. I've certainly built cabinets from a for a guitar amp perspective out of. birch ply and out of pine, mm. and you hear the pine boxes, and they they sound very different. Yes. You know? um, yes, And it's not that it's not because they've got a nice flat frequency response. No, they're yeah, resonant, they, and yep. they they sound
1: yeah different. And I guess um, it comes into that whole you know are the resonances even or odd harmonics, mm. and is that considered musical or is it not? So yeah, there's a lot of complex stuff going on there, and I feel like the industry traditionally has arrived at certain materials and pretty much that's been their answer. Mm. Uh, so, And that that's fine. It's one of the great things about hi-fi is there's so many ways to skin a cat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh,
0: one thing I did want to talk about is um, the use of uh, carbonised bamboo. Is
1: that right? Yeah, so carbonised is more about the end colour or tone of the material. Okay. It's it's, yeah. uh, it's a way of darkening it. Is that
0: the, like a baking process? Uh,
1: that do that? Ooh, um, you've stumped me there. I don't actually know. I, I think it would be a dye a, a, okay. uh, added to the laminate stage. So right. so they do steam the bamboo uh, like it's it's uh, laminated at high temperature with, with water present. Uh, so I would guess that it's a dye or heat effect at that stage okay. of the process, but I don't fully know. <laughs> what carbonisation <laughs> refers to actually, but, but it's basically but, just a, it does affect the density a tiny bit, but okay. it's more about the tone of the
0: material, of the yep.
1: yeah. So but it's a darker tone.
0: Bamboo to me is the interesting part yes. of that. We're sort of seeing bamboo appear in more and more products, absolutely. Um, from, I guess from a sustainability perspective, yeah. it's, a, yep. it's a good crop. Um, you know, it's a lot faster to grow a, a bamboo set of speakers than a definitely, sort of, um, definitely. old growth yeah. mahogany or something, but.
1: Yeah, so it, it certainly caught my interest when I first started using it uh, in the form of plywood uh, in that it's very dense. Yep. It's even denser than a lot of hardwoods, which uh, kind of does my head in, given that it's a grass. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, this, this material is incredibly dense. It's uh, available in a full range of thicknesses and sheet sizes, so it is really a versatile product uh, for all sorts of cabinet makers, be it loudspeakers, furniture, whatever. So, uh, so how, how
0: did you first start using bamboo?
1: Uh, in the loudspeaker context, it was more that I had seen it around and I just thought, oh, I want to give that a go. Uh, I, I find it quite attractive as well. Yeah. I, I find the grain structure really appealing. It's nice to work with. It machines very well. So there's a whole lot of desirable properties. It's very
0: interesting looking. I mean, it's yeah. a, you know, it's got a distinct look to it.
1: Certainly. And that look is very now, I guess. You know, yeah. in some years you may think, oh, bamboo, that's old hat. Yeah. Um, but certainly it's, it's kind of contemporary at the moment. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it's very versatile in, in terms of what you can do with it. It takes a stain wonderfully. It's... So it takes the stain evenly. Yeah, absolutely. the knows. end grain tends to be quite a lot darker, yep. so it will absorb more of whatever stain you're, you're using. But I quite like that effect as well. Yeah, and it's
0: workable to you know in terms of machining it.
1: And... Yeah, it, it's hard material. It's hard to get through, so tooling is uh, critical for, to cut it evenly. But um, yeah, it's no better or worse than than any other plywood. In so, yeah, it's, I mean, for me, the biggest thing, I guess, is the expense. Uh, it is an expensive product. It's even above birch, like premium birch ply, is still cheaper than bamboo in the same sheet thickness. So uh, it's got to be worth it. Mm. Uh, but for me, I, I certainly think it is. Mm.
0: Yeah. So it it sounds to me the the more the more I look at speaker, loud speakers, loudspeakers. Um, uh, the more it seems that there's no, there's no perfect loudspeaker. Absolutely. That um, there's always some compromise.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: how do you decide where to make those, where, sure. where to compromise?
1: Sure. So, so my fundamental design goal for any loudspeaker I make is uh, what you could, I guess, from a technical point of view, call phase neutrality. So I want voices and instruments to project with the least amount of distortion possible. Uh, so that, in the first instance, has actually led me to full-range drivers because of their lack of crossovers. Uh, but as I went down that road, I, I found they were compromised in other ways that did actually affect the, the phase perception. Um, one example being they're quite directive in high frequency, which, which made the presentation suffer in most cases. Mm. So I came back to multi-way speakers but focused on phase coherence through the crossover, which led me down the path of DSP time alignments and first order slopes, Mm -hmm. which is kind of where we arrive at now. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, if I could categorise or characterise my design goals, it would be best possible presentation of instruments and voices and most natural perception of voices and instruments. I want the singer to sound like I know the singer sounds like. Mm. I want that voice to... I don't want to think, oh, that doesn't sound quite right, that that tone or that that, that uh, instrument. Yep. So that's what I'm about. Uh, if I have to compromise a little bit on bass extension or SPL in low frequency, I will uh, to get that uh, critical mid-range uh, right. Yep. So, yeah, so so for me, you know, I'm less about making subwoofers and, um, and huge uh, floor-standing loudspeakers than I am about making compact speakers that have decent face capability but present uh, soundstage and voices as best they possibly can. Mm. Uh, and I feel that's where DSP as well comes into the picture because they can certainly help with all of those facets in mm. most listening rooms.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, so before we finish up, um, I've got two more questions. One is uh, your podcast, Speaker Talk.
1: Yes, which I run with a fellow loudspeaker manufacturer um, startup, uh, Called um, Tristan Hardy in the in the UK, so it's been really good. Yep. We're five episodes in, I think, so it's early days, but um, yeah, we I, I uh, what I really like about it is just having a conversation with someone who's in the same space as me because we get to talk about the same sort of challenges that we're both experiencing. Mm. So I find, uh, and you know, uh, personally, I, I want to thank you for doing the um, Talking Acoustics podcast as well because when I discovered that, I just found hey, there's people that talk about the same sort of stuff I talk about. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You know, with no, with no formal training in acoustics, uh, I, I feel like I'm, you know, just kind of finding my way through the world. So it's, it's great to be able to uh, find people that, yeah, are talking about some of the same principles, even in different spaces. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're all interested in the same outcome. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really great to be able to um, have conversations with people that, uh, that understand what you're, uh, what you're getting at.
0: <laughs> mm, it's the beauty of a connected world. Yeah, doing... for sure. Talk to someone yep. in Wales about uh, who shares a common interest. Um, when you know it was thirty years ago, you'd be restricted to the
1: yeah, that's people right. People who happen
0: to be geographically located in the same. Spot.
1: That's right, and you, you you know you may be around the corner from someone who does yeah, something allied right. to you and never know they exist. Yep. yep, and I'm sure that still happens, but it's certainly a lot easier now to to find your uh, find your uh, tribe with that sort of yep.
0: thing. Yeah. Um, and where can people um, find you? And, and where can they listen to a, a, sure. a Lucy audio? Yeah, well, setup? look, I'd,
1: I'd certainly be very keen to uh, yeah to, to sh- show and tell uh, from that perspective. You know, being a new manufacturer, it is hard to spread the word, and you know, we do trade shows and we do events where we can. Uh, we've done a few things with audio clubs and uh, around the country, uh, but first and foremost, I, I just love you know bringing people in to listen to their favorite music and seeing their reactions. It's great. Mm uh so I'm based in in northcote in the uh, the inner north of melbourne uh victoria australia uh and certainly very happy to uh yeah to to have people come in and uh, see and see and look and touch um other than that we do have another retailer in melbourne uh audio trends out in ringwood uh but yeah look it's it's early days for us so unfortunately we don't have much of a presence in terms of the retail sector we uh, yeah we, we deal direct where we can and um, the hardest thing is is uh, physically connecting with with your audience sort of, mm. being in disparate parts of the world. We have uh, you know we have a global audience for the social media stuff, but yeah, it's uh, it's very hard to actually impart the merit of what you're doing to someone you know in Norway who can only see it. Through yeah, the it's hard, hard, hard for a picture to, to <laughs> yeah, tell you much right.
0: about how the speakers yeah, sound. That's right. But you're quite active on Instagram, is that your sort?
1: yeah? Instagram's been a good outlet for me. Uh, uh, I particularly enjoy showing people uh, the behind the scenes stuff. Yep. Uh, I feel like that's a good story for me to tell. what's, uh, what's your Instagram?
0: Uh you handle? can find me at
1: Lucy Audio. L U C I E A U D I O. Uh so yeah, I certainly um enjoy putting snippets of what's happening in the factory and um yeah, uh, show people the processes I go through, uh highs and lows as well. I mean, I think that's really refreshing for a lot of people to say to see mm. is that stuff goes wrong all the time. Yep. And I don't mind Telling people what goes wrong and why, and and, um, yeah, that's nice on the podcast as well. You know, it's it's great to be able to just have a whinge to someone every now and again. Who who gets it? (laughs) They have an outlet. (laughs) Yeah, I think for me, that's uh, that's the challenge. As a one man show, essentially, in terms of the construction process, Um, there is certainly a limit to the amount of gear I can build um, in any one given time. But that's uh, a strength as well. Uh, You know, I really feel like people who are coming to me are getting personalized product and service and that uh, factors into the calibration as well in that if at all possible I will come and do this for you mm. uh, so um, yeah I, I feel like that's a nice way at least in, in the early days to, to operate All right, yeah.
0: uh, Rick, well um... thanks for
1: taking this on Oh, absolute pleasure, thanks for coming to see me Cheers
0: If you want to find out more about Rick's work or where you can hear his speaker systems, head to lucieaudio.com.au. That's L-U-C-I-E audio. Uh, you can also find him on Instagram uh, at lucieaudio or check out his podcast, Speaker Talk, on iTunes. For more about Talking Acoustics, you can head to talkingacoustics.com. Thanks.